0: Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 31, Tornado, Part 2. I have
1: so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind.
2: Then I'll ask the obvious question.
3: Start asking questions. Do they the answer, son.
0: Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and the DC cinematic universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel, like the infamous tornado scene. This episode, it's decision making and how to fairly judge it, and we'll answer seven critical questions along the way. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant meant. to convert anybody, meaning it's not my mission to convince you or ignore the subjectivity of taste, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC cinematic universe. Reasonable minds will differ, which means you may reach your own valid conclusions, especially on subjective matters like moral dilemmas, but this is a show intended for open-minded fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. So the tornado scene draws a lot of criticism, and much of it bleeds back and forth between the diegetic and creative choice But to be clear, this episode is meant primarily as an analysis of the in-story logic and consistency of the fiction of the story. We'll get into the creative intentions, but that's a separate episode, and there are so many ways to approach this topic, from philosophy, to psychology, to physics, to viewing comprehension and literacy. But I think the easiest approach is to just tackle the questions, and unpacking them as we go. At the core of it, we have these 7 questions, which may be rephrased, or a stand-in for other questions or related matters, but they essentially encapsulate the in-story objections to the scene. These questions are, number one, why didn't Martha let Hank out? Number two, why did they go for the overpass? Number three, why go back for Hank? Number four, why didn't Jonathan send Clark? Number five, why didn't Clark act? Number six, why did Jonathan hold up his hand? And number seven, why did Clark abide by that? Well, before we move on to those seven critical questions, I do want to quickly address a reader email by Thomas, who wasn't satisfied with the uncertain fears laid out in our last episode. He agrees that we can speculate, but he felt the film could have used an expressly stated fear. And as we discussed, there were some explicitly stated fears, such as the rejection of Clark or him being taken away from them. But I understand that the absence of a clearly expressed danger to Clark's secret getting out makes it harder for some to gauge and therefore sympathize with that more abstract fear. Well, if you absolutely need a concrete fear and can't imagine one for yourself, the suicide squad presents an easy one. Individuals with paranormal powers are in the thrall of the government. They're lost in an unaccountable hole, and their families are used as leverage to ensure compliance, and they're controlled by fear. Now note, it isn't the fact of a bomb, but rather the fear of a bomb which is controlling them. You're simply presented with a compelling case, which may include an exhibition, but at the end of the day, it's actually a threat, which is controlling you. So if Clark finds himself held with his parents threatened, or he is told they have the ability to kill him with a switch, who is 17-year-old Clark to doubt that? If he's caught at that point in his life, he wouldn't have met Jor-El, and he wouldn't have learned the parameters of his powers. He would be questioned relentlessly, unable to provide answers that he didn't have. And after 16 years of that kind of treatment by the government, later when the military found and accessed the scout ship, and then brought Zod to Earth, we get a different picture of who Clark might side with when choosing between Earth or Krypton. Maybe. The fact is, as we discussed in last episode, those fears weren't discussed because they were uncertain and unknown. But the very fact that they are unknown is knowledge itself, and it's remarkably modeled in the film. The way humans solve problems through cognitive processes don't really provide Clark's parents with much guidance, insight, or certainty. As difficult as raising any child is, there's no readily available modern algorithm. Algorithm or conceptual prototype of how to raise and parent an otherworldly child. That's part of the reason why I said Jonathan might lean on biblical narratives last episode as the best example that he's got. They couldn't use trial and error given the potential costs of failure. So instead, they very much had to play it by ear. They had to make it up as they went along, and they had to rely on heuristics or patterns and a proven history. So keeping Clark safe had largely worked, and so it would continue to be the strategy until... Till it didn't. Jonathan acknowledged the need to explore additional possibilities in his last moments.
3: So it's important to like actively keep your mind open to make room for evolving concepts, and remember that concepts may sometimes hurt as much as they help.
0: Jonathan recognized that their concept of safety was beginning to hurt, and so he was open to its evolution. Jonathan's awareness of his own uncertainty and failing honestly is the mark of a wise and competent parent. It's the mirror side of the psychological concept called the Dunning. Kruger effect. I'll let David Dunning sum it up. David Dunning who is a social psychologist, his research focuses on
4: accuracy and illusion in self judgment and you may recognize his last name from the Dunning-Kruger effect. Let's start there. What is the Dunning-Kruger effect meant to designate?
5: Well the way it's understood in popular culture is that incompetent people tend not to know that they're incompetent. Actually you can scratch that. They're not in a position to know that they're incompetent. They, They don't have the skills to recognize just how many errors and just how many mistakes that they're making. Uh, Problem solving is like that. The the theories you use to solve problems are often the theories you use to judge whether or not a a problem has been solved.
0: And John Cleese puts it into more
2: explicit terms. If you're very, very stupid, how can you possibly realize that you're very, very stupid. You'd have to be relatively intelligent to realize how stupid you are. There's a, a wonderful bit of research by a guy called David Dunning at Cornell, who's a friend of mine, I'm proud to say, who's pointed out that in order to know how good you are at something requires exactly the same skills as it does to be good at that thing in the first place, which means, and this is terribly funny, that if you're absolutely no good at something, at all, then you lack exactly the skills that you need to know that you're absolutely no good at it. I'll put links in the show notes, but while the
0: Dunning-Kruger effect tends to talk about the low end, the imposter effect describes how experts who are competent in the areas tend to underestimate their performance. Applied to Jonathan, only a good father knows or recognizes how he's lacking as a father. This has been observed throughout history. Confucius said, real knowledge is to know The extent of one's ignorance shakespeare said the fool doth think he is wise but the wise man knows himself to be a fool darwin said ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge and finally bertrand russell said one of the painful things about our time is that those who feel certainty are stupid and those with any imagination or understanding are filled with doubt and indecision so faced with a unique challenge Clark's parents knew what they didn't know, and they tended towards a more cautious approach to parenting. Over and over again, the film challenges us not to take things for granted. As humans, our minds are built to trade accuracy for speed, which means that we take efficient shortcuts and assumptions all the time, and that's a good thing, until you're dealing with something that demands deliberation and accuracy above all else. You have
6: two systems of thinking that steer you through life. Fast, intuitive System 1, that is incredibly powerful and does most of the driving. And slow, logical System 2, that is clever, but a little lazy. Trouble is, there's a bit of a battle between them as to which one is driving your decisions. Fast System 1 is a master of taking shortcuts to bring about the quickest possible decision.
5: That happens as I ask you a question and uh, if the question is difficult, but there is a related question that is a lot uh, that is somewhat simpler, you're just going to answer the other question and not even notice.
4: So the system does all kinds of shortcuts to feed us the information in a faster
6: way we can make actions and the system is accepting some mistakes. We make decisions using fast system 1 when we really should be using slow system two and this is why we make the mistakes we do systematic mistakes known as cognitive biases There are so many fun and fascinating cognitive biases,
0: examples where our intuition misleads us, and psychological experiments that entire podcasts and shows can be and are dedicated to illuminating that's not this show. So instead, the following is a simple experiment by Derek Mueller of Veritasium, which translates well to audio.
7: I'm going to give you guys three numbers, a three-number sequence, and I have a rule in mind that these three numbers obey. And I want you to try to figure out what that rule is. But the way that you can get information is by proposing your own set of three numbers to which I will say yes that follows my rule or no it doesn't follow my rule and then you can propose what you think the rule is. Is that Do fair? It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so here here are the three numbers. Two, four, eight. Two, four, eight. You don't need to continue the sequence, you can propose a co- totally different sequence, whatever you want to propose and I will simply say yes or no. 16, 32. 16, 32 and... 64. Yeah. Uh, those also follow my rule. Okay. What's the rule? What Mul- are you thinking? Uh, multiply by two. That is not my rule. What? That's not my rule. But you're allowed, you, if you want, propose three other numbers.
8: Three, six, twelve. Three, six,
7: six twelve. 12. Uh-huh. Three, six, twelve uh-huh. follows my rule. Ten, twenty, forty. Ten, twenty, forty. That follows the rule. Yeah, I'm still multiplying by two. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know what you're doing. And yes, it follows my rule, but no, it's not my rule. 5 ten. Ten and twenty. Follows my rule. Hundred. Two hundred. Four hundred. Follows my
9: rule. 500 to 1,000 2,000. Paul my rule. Want, want me to keep going? But do I just keep going? You're going to tell me your rule? <laughs> 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 am I doing it the wrong way? Am
7: I, no, I approaching you, this the wrong way? You're totally fine, okay. but you're approaching it the way most people approach it. Like think strategically about this. You want information, yeah. I have information. The point of the three numbers, right, is to allow you to figure out what the rule is. Yeah. Okay.
9: okay. I'm going to give you the numbers that I don't think fits the sequence and then see what you say. So I'll say two, four, seven. Fits my rule. So
7: whatever I propose is right.
10: So is your rule like you can propose any number? So the rule is anything we say is yes.
7: No. Damn it. <laughs> but you are on the right track Our now. Crew. This is good, right?
10: Five, ten, fifteen.
7: That follows my rule.
10: What? Oh. Really?
7: Yeah. I don't believe this. <laughs> One, two, three? One, two, three. Follows the rule.
10: What about seven, eight, nine?
7: Follows, (laughs) yes that follows the rule. Eight, sixteen, thirty-nine. Fits the rule. Excellent. (laughs) But we're no closer to the rule. (laughs) I want you to get to the rule. How about one, seven, thirteen. Follows the rule. What? Eleven, (laughs) twelve, thirteen. How does this make sense? Follows the rule. I don't know how to do this. Does not follow the rule. Ten, nine, eight does not.
10: Oh, so is it all in ascending order? Booyah. Okay. Up top.
7: Yes, first ones to is? get it. You guys nailed it. That's the rule. That's the rule. Incre- numbers in increasing order. Aww. Numbers in ascending order. Oh, so much. 10, 15, 25, doesn't matter. Any numbers in ascending order. But the point is you can never prove a theory true. What was interesting for me was that everyone I spoke to came up with a rule very early on and then only proposed numbers that fit with that rule they were thinking. I was looking for you guys to propose a set of numbers that didn't follow your rule oh, right. and, and didn't follow through. my rule. I was looking for you guys not to try to confirm what you believe. You're always asking something where you expect the answer to be yes, right? Like you're yeah. trying to get at it. Yeah.
10: But instead you want to get The
7: no. You want to get the no because that's much more informational for you than the yes. Like if everything's doing a yes. that is true. That
10: is really true once you say that.
0: So that was a trite example of how we're biased to look for an answer when we've already decided upon it. Consider that in the context of judgment. If investigations and convictions were determined by our initial inclination towards guilt or innocence, the outcome would be, and arguably is, incredibly biased by our first impression. It's because we know that we have these frailties in our decisions. Making That we have a justice system with systematic procedural requirements biased in favor of acquittal, innocent until proven guilty, rather than guilty until proven innocent. Our system requires a high bar on evidence and testimony. It's an adversarial system with zealous defenders, multiple jury members, and ideally an impartial arbiter to referee it all. The system is far from perfect, but it aspires to minimize those cognitive biases which rush to judgment. The system is meant to slow us down and force us to deliberate, force us to evaluate the evidence rationally and to clear that high bar uncertainty beyond all reasonable doubt. Before condemning someone, jurors have to be taught some of these steps. Crimes have to be broken into elements, smaller aspects, often specific mindsets, specific actions, with consequences of a specific degree, which each then must be satisfied to be guilty of the larger whole. The prosecutor has to step through them one by one, the defense has to try to dismantle them one by one. Every piece of evidence has to be evaluated from multiple facets, whether it's reliable, if it comes from an unimpeachable source, hasn't been tampered with, and so on. And the judge will provide the jury instructions so that the jury knows what they're evaluating and how. Now, why do we bother with all this? because we're aspiring for a just and a fair result. Anyone can just decide and say, you're guilty, or that's stupid, and they're entitled to their opinion, and they might have good reasons for that opinion. However, a systematic form of deliberation allows us to have greater peace that that opinion is founded in fairness, that it's not a decision based just in raw emotion, prejudice, or bias, but hopefully evidence, reason, and justice. So for each of these questions, we're going to look at the underlying assumptions, or the elements needed to reach that conclusion, and then we're going to test them, and we'll see if that judgment is fair. So with our first question, why didn't Martha let Hank out of the car? The critic asked this question because, to them, the answer is that Martha was stupid. If Martha, who was in the back seat with Hank, let him out before they ran to the overpass, there would be no decision to run back for him later. It's all Martha's fault. In their opinion, clearly, the best thing would have been to run to the overpass with Hank, right? And on that point, they're absolutely right. Assuming that the overpass represented safety, more on that later, going to it with Hank is the best course of action. There's not much question or debate about that. However, the flaw in the criticism is how the critic arrives at the answer. When they allege that Martha is stupid, they're talking about a standard of care, or an expectation of behavior. When they talk about all the future consequences, failing to behave as they expect, they're talking about foreseeability. Together, an expectation of how Martha should have acted failed to act that way, and knowing what the outcome would be is the basis for their condemnation. Obviously, all of these have to come together for the condemnation to be just or fair. If Martha is expected to leave Hank in the car, then she did nothing wrong. Or if she couldn't have foreseen the consequences, it's unfair to judge her. When you break up the criticism into its elements, I think the flaws become apparent. Starting with the standard of care, what the critic is saying is, I wouldn't do that. That's why Martha is stupid. And when they say, I wouldn't, they're using themselves as the standard. They're representing what we call in the law the reasonable person. For example, if they say, I wouldn't do that, but I'm a psychopath who hates animals, their example means nothing. The appeal of using themselves as an example is to say what they do is what we'd expect the typical or everyday person to do. We do this because we can't possibly have a rule or a law for every conceivable situation that could possibly exist. Instead, we just ask jurors to imagine what a reasonable person person would do. It's critical to understand that the just and fair standard by which we judge people is not what the best or the optimal action would be, but what a reasonable one is. And that's because humans aren't perfect and rarely act perfectly. Now before, we agree that the perfect action would be to take Hank to the bridge from the outset. But again, the standard isn't the best action, but a reasonable one. Legal scholar Percy Henry Winfield described the reasonable person saying, he has not the courage. Of Achilles, the wisdom of Ulysses, or the strength of Hercules, nor has he the prophetic vision of a clairvoyant. He will not anticipate folly in all its forms, but he never puts out of consideration the teachings of experience, and so will guard against the negligence of others when experience shows that such negligence is common. He is a reasonable man, but not a perfect citizen, nor a paragon of circumspection. Yet, even with this explanation of the reasonable person, the critic can still say, you don't have to be perfect to take Hank to the overpass. That's simply what a reasonable person would do. Yet, part of the reasonable person analysis adds, under the circumstances, it makes no sense to judge the reasonable person in a vacuum. We have to adopt and accept the circumstances to judge fairly. You can't condemn a deaf person for ignoring cries for help because his circumstance is that he's deaf and unable to hear the cries. By the same token, the law accounts for people in emergency circumstances, under what's called the Emergency Doctrine. As Judge Bellicosa wrote, the Emergency Doctrine recognizes that when an actor is faced with a sudden and unexpected circumstance, which leaves little or no time for thought, deliberation, or consideration, or causes the actor to be reasonably so disturbed that the actor must make a speedy decision without weighing alternative courses of conduct, the actor may not be negligent if the action taken are reasonable and prudent in the emergency context. A person in such an emergency situation cannot reasonably be held to the same accuracy of judgment or conduct as one who has had the full opportunity to reflect, even though it later appears that the actor made the wrong decision. So at no point in this film does it present us with the Kents as unfeeling. Strictly rational robots who behave optimally along the best course of action at every instance. They're very much emotional human beings caught up in the panic of the emergency. People are streaming past their car, a terrible tornado is brewing before them, and they immediately enact what they've been trained to do. Again, more on that in a bit. This is critical to understand because this oversight is intentionally illustrative of the entire situation. We are expressly being shown that they aren't. Fully rational, calm, collected, and calculating in this scenario. And nor should they be expected to be. Now, note that an emergency situation isn't a free pass. It doesn't mean that Martha can suddenly start punching and biting people left and right just because the standard of care has been lowered. Yet, even if we completely lack imagination, it's easy to tell what the standard of care is or would be just by looking at other people in that situation. It's a mistake for the critic to frame it as Martha's fault, because guess who else? Forgot Hank Clark Forgot Jonathan forgot. None of the strangers running past them seemed to notice, or if they did, they didn't say or do anything to help. They are all hurried and harried and making poor decisions, but everyone is. A mother who has doubtlessly secured and released her little girl from that car seat hundreds of times before stumbles and struggles to do it now. That's the expected standard of care under emergency circumstances. The critic might say that the behavior is contrived, that no one in real life would have those issues, but I'd encourage that critic to look into the infamous collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. If you've ever watched a video of a suspension bridge dramatically twisting in the wind after picking up a periodic frequency, the most exaggerated example, and the one that you probably saw, was the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. As the bridge violently waved and twisted, unsurprisingly, people did abandon their cars, including Leonard Coatsworth, who left behind his black cocker spaniel Tubby. More on that story later. The point is, the in film behavior is absolutely consistent with what we've seen in real life and what happened on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Martha, Clark and Jonathan behaved like real reasonable people have under emergency circumstances. If we break down the scene even further, when they got out of the car initially, it's not like they knew that they were going to abandon it at that moment. Instead, Martha did what you reasonably do if you have a dog. You shut the door to prevent your dog from running off during a temporary stop. But only once people stream past them and they could all behold the coming storm and jonathan gave voice to what everyone was already doing did they go towards the overpass and then overlook hank martha shouldn't be blamed in fact she's the one who remembers hank when no one else did it's not like they abandoned hank in a hot car while grocery shopping or negligently left kevin home alone for christmas twice it was a 22 second momentary lapse less than half a minute saying that they should have acted optimally is counterfactual, lacks imagination and empathy. It's a hypocritical condemnation from the calm and the comfort of an armchair, which is wholly unlike the Kents circumstances in that emergency. It's because we know that it's hard to make decisions under those circumstances, that there is a debate, even to this day, of how to advise the public in reacting to a tornado. Consider the following clips on what to do if caught out on the road during a tornado and there's no sturdy structures in sight. The first, from the Red Cross Scientific Advisory Council, Dr. Rick Bissell, opines on whether to lay flat in a ditch or stay in one's car.
5: The research that's been done since 1980, but particularly the research that's been done in the last decade is pretty unanimous in showing that the car is a much safer place to be than being out on the road or out in a field or out in a ditch by yourself. Modern cars are built to protect you. They surround you with a steel cage, there's impact absorption, and the airbags will still work if you leave the car running. And so the suggestion is that you remain in the car, engine running, and then because things can fly through the windows and out to the the other side of the car, it's good to lower yourself down as much as you can so that your head isn't above the lower sill of the window so that you're not as likely to be hit by flying debris.
0: Next, alternative advice from Dr. Sanjay Gupta, chief medical correspondent for CNN. One place you can't hide from a tornado
3: is in your car. Tornado strength winds can pick up a one to two ton vehicle like this one and toss it around like you or I would a basketball. Now if you are stuck outside as a tornado approaches find a ditch or any place far away from potentially dangerous objects and vehicles
0: (laughs) and stay low. With some additional support.
9: Look, these huge trailers, these huge uh, rigs, uh, the back ends of tractor trailers that are literally being picked up and thrown hundreds of yards, hundreds of yards.
4: Take a closer look. Keep in mind these trucks weigh at least 12,000 pounds empty, here being tossed hundreds of feet into the air.
0: Now, despite this, the experts don't actually disagree on the right course of action. What they disagree on is how to streamline their advice to the public. The truth is, there is a complex matrix of factors involved in reacting to a tornado. Under optimal conditions where the actor knows everything, there are ideal courses of action which run contrary to the advice given as public policy. Just for example, if you know the strength and the direction of the tornado, and you know that the roads are clear and how far you can get during your lead time, which is typically around 13 minutes, it may well very be that your optimal course of action is to outrun and escape the tornado tornado altogether. However, because people have variable lead times, they're terrible at gauging the strength, direction, and duration of tornadoes, and generally can't predict how the traffic will be, even if that might be the optimal course of action in a specific case, the general expert advice is to not run away, but to run towards a sturdy structure and await the tornado. In the case of our dueling experts above, one expert feels that most tornadoes don't have the strength to throw cars, and the greater risk is therefore from debris. Additionally, people may be poor judges of whether a ditch is sufficiently lower to the ground to offer better protection, and so they espouse the broad advice of staying in the car. On the other hand, other experts recognize that generally weaker tornadoes won't kill as many people, so they'd rather people be prepared for the worst-case scenario where the cars can be thrown by a tornado. This isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, but they have to weigh and balance the likelihood of harm against the ability of the people to execute it. If people could handle more factors and accurately judge them under stress, the experts wouldn't have to streamline their advice and they could just leave it up to the individuals. But because they know our decision-making is compromised during emergencies, they have to simplify the message. And that applies to our second question. Question number 2. Why did they go for the overpass? Today, hopefully you should know that if you're ever caught in a tornado on the road, it is almost universally advised that you shouldn't seek shelter under an overpass. The basic reasons are threefold. First, the wind speed is greater due to the elevation and wind tunnel effect, both of which increase the risk of getting hit by flying debris or getting blown away. Second, most overpasses do not have girders to hold onto, and even if they do, the wind speed is likely to break your grip. Third if you leave your car there, especially during low visibility conditions like with a thunderstorm, you risk collision with others. There have been a number of fatalities due to people seeking shelter under overpasses. However, why is the idea of overpass safety so persistent that Jonathan believed it in 1997 and the idea survives to this day requiring experts to routinely advise against it at every turn? Well, as I said before, safety is a complex matrix of factors and if they come together just right people can survive a tornado under an overpass and in some rare circumstances they may survive because of the overpass not simply in spite of it there were 3 instances of this happening were especially famous and completely captured the public perception in 1979 Wichita Falls Texas a man survived an F4 tornado on the embankment under a bridge with only minor injuries while those caught in the same traffic jam sustained serious injuries or even perished So the story goes. In 1991, a Kansas television crew played and replayed their harrowing survival under a Kansas Turnpike overpass. And then in 1996, a Minnesota television crew survived a tornado outbreak in central Illinois under an overpass. These three stories, and particularly the replay of the videos, completely ingrained into the viewers the idea of overpass safety. In 1999, a veteran storm chaser distributed a photograph of a mother and her children under an overpass with a tornado in the distance near Newcastle, Oklahoma. The myth became so powerful that people actually left their homes to drive to the nearest highway overpass to seek shelter. The National Weather Service was so incensed that it published a 25-page presentation solely dissecting the myth of overpass safety. They listed the fatalities that had resulted and how to reverse the public perception. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, consider that even the National Weather Service, who were certain that Overpass safety was a myth, struggled with how to convey this to the public as a matter of policy. In their presentation, they ask, is there a need to revisit the current tornado safety guidelines for people in vehicles or in open country? Should we say anything about staying in one's car or driving at right angles to the tornado's path simply to get out of the way? So, as we discussed earlier, the experts know what they don't know, and they answer with uncertainty rather than absolutes. So, how does our critic answer the second question? Well, the critic might say they went to the overpass because they're stupid and they should have known better. Well, like our first question, we agree this isn't the optimal action, but that's not the test to fairly judge someone's choices. The test is whether it is reasonable for somebody with the same knowledge, experience, and circumstances to do the same thing in that situation. The National Weather Service's 1999 presentation, and the concerted effort to dispel the myth ever since shows that it absolutely was what people would have done in 1997. Because that was what they were being shown and fed by the media without proper context. That the people survived despite the overpass and not because of the overpass. This whole issue reinforces a theme of the scene and much of Man of Steel even if it's not what people should do or what we want people to do, it's what people actually do. We wish that humanity would embrace somebody from the stars with open arms, without prejudice, and without fear, to not reject somebody who only wishes to help. That's what we want to happen, but that's not what people actually do. We wish that the Kents would have remembered Hank. But in reality, people are careless during emergencies. We wish people wouldn't run to overpasses for safety during tornadoes. But in 1997, that's what people did. And that's what some people still do to this day. Man of Steel isn't afraid to show the reality of the human condition, because its Superman ultimately prevails, but that's another episode. So basically, it's hypocritical to assume Jonathan would have knowledge from the future, that is, to have today's views on overpasses back in 1997, and to require him to act more perfectly than people actually did in reality. Showing the frailty and the weakness of humanity only enhances the meaning and the significance of its strengths. Here, Jonathan is in an emergency emergency situation where it's hard to think straight and make good decisions. Yet his true self comes out under these circumstances, and he is a hero to others. Even if everyone else is just running towards the overpass, and I'll spare you the psychology of herds and peer pressure, Jonathan gives that action voice by guiding others to take cover. Which incidentally is not against anyone's guidelines. Taking cover is universally advised in the face of a tornado, and if we wanted to do some inventive apologetics, we might say that Jonathan spotted an especially low-lying ditch by the overpass which he intended people to get into, but that's disingenuous anyways Jonathan is looking after the people around him trying to direct them to safety and when he spots somebody in need a woman struggling to get her daughter out of the back seat he steps forward to help her no less than a dozen people ran past that woman without helping her but Jonathan didn't hesitate to help there's no calculation or deliberation Jonathan is simply acting on instinct and his core character is coming out whether he knows it or not he's setting the standard and the example for Clark in that moment you take care of your family first then when you feel that they are relevant relatively, but not absolutely safe. You look after others before you secure your own safety. This is generally how a hero does and is expected to act. It's probably a large part of why people have problems with Clark not acting like this, but more on that later. Now, few take issue with Jonathan stopping to take this action. A human life was at risk, the action is perceived as heroic, and the action is ultimately successful without a clear nexus with Jonathan's death. Consequentialism is not really an appropriate analysis, but assuming Jonathan wanted to optimize his behavior, he probably shouldn't have helped. If he didn't, he would have gone back towards Martha and Clark sooner. Then he would have gone to Hank earlier and before the car was thrown into the air, and he would have returned without issue. Meanwhile, in all that time, admittedly the mother was panicked, but likely she would have managed to get her daughter free on her own, eventually, and arrive at the overpass a bit later, but no less safe. The problem with this kind of forecasting is that it is completely unfair to the characters making decisions in the moment. the knowledge they have at the time. This kind of presumptive prediction is a form of hindsight bias where we judge the characters based on our knowledge of the totality of the events which the characters couldn't have known at the time. Now we know that Jonathan is able to free the girl relatively quickly so we can assume that the mother could eventually do the same. But Jonathan didn't know that at the time and when he decides to help he doesn't know if it's going to take a while to get her unstuck or if it's going to be quick. He simply makes the decision to help. It isn't like he has a clear ticking clock over his head, letting him know how much time he has to act. Nonetheless, countless critics act as if Jonathan and Clark knew the exact moment of Jonathan's prospective demise, and they propose and plan all sorts of strategies around that knowledge, as if the characters should have known, despite the plain fact that the characters clearly didn't and couldn't have known. Such criticisms are unfair and unreasonable, and they take a lot of liberties with what we assume to be true. For example, for all we know, the mother is in such a panic state that she can never free her daughter. Or, Hank is so afraid that he still doesn't get out of the car soon enough it isn't fair to the characters, the story, or the film to play fortune teller with their fates and judge them harshly based on our knowledge. Being fair means putting ourselves into their situation and knowledge at the time, rather than judge using information established after the fact. It's the same idea behind using the reasonable person standard, which asks us to imagine and empathize with what that person would do. And that brings us to question 3, why go back for Hank? So the critic answers that going back for Hank makes no sense. Hank is just an animal, and no human life is worth the life of an animal. This is one of those places where the critic can't necessarily divorce their own point of view from fair evaluation of the characters. Irrespective of their personal feelings and valuation of pets against human life, the consistency of the story isn't judged on whether it matches their preference, but whether it's realistic for people to risk their own lives for their pets. And you don't have to dig very far at all to find countless examples of pet owners doing that. Unfortunately, the stories tend to be a little rambling, so I've cut them all for time, but what Jonathan did was something that many have done before in the real world, and this isn't necessarily an isolated case of pet crazy people. There is some neuroscience to back up just how much people love their dogs.
1: Some of the same chemicals that make people go all melty for babies are present when we deal with pets. A recent study found that oxytocin, the hormone that facilitates bonding, went up 300% in dog owners who gazed into their pet's eyes. So it's possible animals are hacking to our love of cuteness and, by extension, our instinct to protect the helpless and innocent. So the good news is that people, when it really matters, will opt to save a human life over a dog. Probably. Georgia Regents University psychologists asked 573 people what they would do if a bus was hurtling towards a person and a dog and they could only save one. If the dog was their personal pet and the person was an unknown tourist, the tourist would be a messy red hood ornament 40% of the time.
0: So earlier, we talked about the tale of Tubby the Cocker Spaniel stranded in a car on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge after Leonard Coatsworth abandoned the car. It was absolutely clear that the collapse of the bridge was imminent and that the situation was dangerous and life-threatening. I encourage you to check out the video to see just how violently the bridge was swaying. At the time, it was the third longest suspension bridge in the world and it earned the nickname Galloping Gertie. Despite how dramatic the sway and how apparent the danger, not one, not two, but three Different individuals risked their lives to try and save Tubby First, Coatsworth tried to return to the car, but the motion of the bridge threw him to the ground repeatedly. Then a photographer, Howard Clifford, tried, but he couldn't get to the car. Third and finally, Professor Farquharson, a dog lover, decided to try and managed to reach the car. He opened the door and tried to coax Tubby out, but he got bit by Tubby who wouldn't come. The professor gave up and stumbled back to safety mere moments before the bridge collapsed. Sadly, Tubby perished, but note that three men willingly risked their lives for this little dog. It wasn't even Leonard's pet, but rather his daughter's dog. And it wasn't Howard's dog. And the professor merely liked dogs with no particular attachment to this one. You don't have to agree with what they did, but it shows that this is a real thing that happens in the real world. Note too how Tubby refused to exit the car. Just like people have different reactions to a pet in danger, dogs have different reactions to danger. I'm surprised by the number of people who find it inconceivable that Hank might hesitate to exit the car once Jonathan reached him. Not only does Tubby show us that's exactly what some dogs do, but the ASPCA and the National Weather Service specifically advise training dogs to come on command under stress and being prepared to safely remove and secure dogs who might cower during a tornado. Again, fair judgment means empathy and examining the standard of care. Even if it's not the choice you'd make or the actions you'd do or what your pets would do, as long as you understand it's a choice that actual people make in the real world and behavior which many pets exhibit the actions are plausible and rational well the critic may accept that this happens in reality but then condemns them all real or unreal as stupid essentially they're making a value judgment and doing a cost-benefit analysis however the cost-benefit analysis is not really
2: that useful a lens and these creatures have perfect self-control perfect calculating ability rational expectations and no emotions I, I don't know any of those people. Certainly there
0: are none here. We like to pretend that we make decisions like Mr. Spock, but we don't. People
6: think rationally. They calculate risks, rewards, and decide accordingly. But we're not always rational. We rarely behave like Mr. Spock. For most of our decisions, we use fast, intuitive but occasionally unreliable system one.
0: A cost-benefit analysis is faulty for two reasons. First, it assumes that there's enough information on which to base a reasonable calculation. And second, it assumes that a calculation is done at all. Addressing the first point, tornadoes vary greatly in strength and power.
3: Investigators like Tim use a system called the EF scale to measure the strength of tornadoes by rating the damage they do.
9: EF0 is damage to tree limbs, some shingles off of a roof or so, and then EF1 is more substantial damage like some roof decking.
3: And EF1 can often be powerful enough to overturn a mobile home. EF2 The roof is gone. The aftermath of even an EF-2 can look like a bomb exploded.
9: EF-3 is basically the outer walls of the house are down and only the interior walls remain. An EF-3
3: releases the same energy as 10 tons of TNT.
9: EF-4 is basically all the walls are down with just a pile of debris left on the foundation.
3: Very little is left standing after an EF-4 tornado.
9: An EF-5 is complete sweeping clean of the foundation, of the house, of all the belongings, such that there's only a little perimeter left in the ground where the house once
3: was. An EF-5 is equivalent in bomb damage to the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima.
9: To have an EF-5 go through a major metropolitan area is rare. I mean, less than 1% of all tornadoes get to be that strong and get to produce that kind of intense damage.
3: But EF-4 and EF-5 storms combined Just 1% of all tornadoes produce 70% of
0: all casualties. Now based on that clip, statistically, any tornado Jonathan was facing was unlikely to be on the high end of the spectrum. Additionally, the scale looks backwards in time, looking at the effects of the tornado and the level of damage to determine its severity. That doesn't help Jonathan to make his decisions as he hands the little girl over to Clark. It's not until Jonathan has reached the station wagon do we see the barn in the background vaporize and vehicles being lifted into the air, allowing us to categorize this tornado. At the time Jonathan ran out there, he wouldn't have the experience of knowledge to categorize the tornado, and if he was experienced with them, he'd know that they were dangerous, but that the vast majority of tornadoes are brief and do nominal damage. It's very difficult for a layperson to prospectively gauge a tornado's strength or seriousness or how long it will last or how much time that they have. I'll wager that this was Hank's first tornado, so Jonathan would have little to no idea how how Hank might react. Now note, if Hank did get out immediately, Jonathan would have been completely vindicated. He'd be alive, they'd have Hank, and everything would be fine. But again, that's inappropriate hindsight analysis. However, it suggests that Jonathan's estimates were basically spot on. If Hank hadn't hesitated, or that specific car hadn't come down on the station wagon, everything was completely achievable. Nonetheless, a critic could come back and say that in the face of such uncertainty, risk of human life for a dog is unreasonable. Perhaps, but that assumes that there was any kind of cold, rational calculation during an emergency situation. If you asked Jonathan, Leonard, Howard, or the professor if they would trade their lives for a dog in a case of certain death, they'd probably say no. However, if you pose the question as, you can keep from losing your dog if you take a nominal risk on your life, suddenly the question enters that sliding scale which relies on the reasonable behavior of others. Practically everything we do in life contains some amount of risk, whether driving a car, eating out, or even stepping into the shower. Those mundane activities are statistically more likely to bring about your demise than death by tornado. Yet we do them daily because we consider it a fair trade to travel, enjoy food prepared by others, and enjoy basic hygiene. There's a spectrum of tolerable risk that a reasonable person is willing To take to rescue a beloved furry family member. And our real world examples show Jonathan is within that spectrum. Of course, that isn't really how our minds work. In an emergency situation, we don't do calculated analysis of the risks. We're much more prone to be biased by loss
6: aversion and engage in even riskier behavior. Cognitive biases play havoc with our best intentions. Our willingness to take a gamble is very different depending on whether we're faced with a loss or a gain. In a winning frame of mind. People are naturally rather cautious. But what about losing? Are we similarly cautious when faced with a potential loss? When the choice is framed in terms of a loss, most people take a risk. Our slow system two could probably work out that the outcome is the same in both cases. Instead, fast system one makes a rough guess based on change. At the heart of this is a bias called loss aversion. People think in terms of gains and losses, and
5: in their thinking typically losses loom larger than gains. We even have
6: an idea by by how much, uh, by roughly a factor of two or a little more than two. When we think we're winning, we don't take risks. But when we're faced with a loss, frankly, we're a bit reckless.
0: Faced with the safe option of doing nothing and the risk of rescuing Hank, Jonathan behaved like the cognitive bias predicts, not to mention the influence of priming we discussed last episode. Faced with the prospects of losing Clark and his usefulness challenged and his protective nature brought out by their discussion in the car, Jonathan would be primed to not lose another family member, to show that he's useful and to protect his entire family. If we look back two episodes to the three examples of heroes, we have further proof that heroes don't do cold, rational calculations, but simply act. Heroic altruism towards strangers is generally irrational. The rational economic theory of altruism tends to deal with our genetic propagation, which isn't supported by saving a stranger or a dog. In rational terms, our three heroes from episode 29 put their own lives at risk for the mere possibility that they might save another already at risk. That's not a safe or rational choice, but it's what heroes do. Do you remember Wesley Autry the construction worker who left his two girls on the subway platform to hold an epileptic still with his body as a moving train passed over them. If you asked him whether it makes sense to risk making his two little girls fatherless for the slim chance of saving a man that they don't know, he'd acknowledge that it doesn't. But nonetheless, it's the choice he successfully made. Countless first responders, servicemen, and so on risk their lives and the possibility of leaving their families for the sake of others based on ideals that transcend. And human selfish rational calculation. Joseph Campbell reflected upon this in an interview with Bill
2: Moyers. There's a wonderful paper by Schopenhauer called The Foundation of Morality. There he asks exactly the question that you've asked. How is it that a human being can so participate in the peril and or pain of another that without thought, spontaneously, he sacrifices his own life to the other? How can this happen? That what we normally think of as the first law of nature, namely self-preservation, is suddenly dissolved <coughs> (coughs) there's a breakthrough. In Hawaii, some four or five years ago, there was an extraordinary adventure that represents this problem. Uh, There's a place there called the Pali. People like to go up there to get their hair blown around or to commit suicide. Well, the police car was on its way up, and they saw just beyond the railing a young man actually... Clearly about to jump and prepare himself to jump. Police car stopped. The policeman on the right jumps out to grab the boy and uh, grabs him just as he jumped and was himself being pulled over and would have gone over if the second cop hadn't gotten around, grabbed him and pulled the two of them back. And um, the policeman uh, was asked, Why didn't you let go? I mean, you would have lost your life. And you see what happened to that man. This is what's known as one pointed meditation. Everything else in his life dropped off. His duty to his family, his duty to his job, his duty to his own career, all of his wishes and hopes for life just disappeared, and he was about to go. And his answer was, I couldn't let go. If I'd let that young man go, I could not have lived another day of my life. How come? Schopenhauer's answer is, This is the breakthrough of a metaphysical realization that you and the other are one. And that the separateness is only an effect of the temporal forms of sensibility of time and space. And our true reality is in that unity with all life. It is a metaphysical truth that becomes spontaneously realized because it's the real truth of your life Policeman didn't know who that young man was schopenhauer said in small ways you can see this happening every day all the time this is a theme that can be seen moving life in the world people doing nice things for each other
0: now much of campbell's work is heady and perhaps as confronting as it can be insightful but allow me to propose the possibility that the interconnectedness exemplified by his heroic ideal is demonstrated by intergalactic trans species love. While dogs aren't human, there's something philosophically poignant about family transcending species when a pair of humans are called to lovingly raise an alien Kryptonian as their own. (laughs) Okay, so the critic is now throwing up their hands. Okay, fine, we get it. People love their dogs. That doesn't address question number four. Why did Jonathan send Clark? And the critic is dying to answer this with their list of grievances. All your talk of rational calculation from Jonathan's perspective is pointless because the clear option was always to send Clark. Clark was ready and willing to go, but Jonathan stupidly stopped him. If Clark went, Clark would be stronger, faster, and invulnerable if anything happened. If Jonathan... Had only sent Clark, he'd be risking nothing. If Clark went, they'd all be safe and alive. Well, there's a ton of poor logic, bad assumptions, and unfair judgments in that, but let's try to unpack them. And fortunately, we've tackled many of them already, and perhaps you've spotted a number of them. You can tell that they're succumbing to hindsight bias in assuming the outcome to judge the decisions. They're assuming a calculation is being done and assuming a lot of knowledge unavailable to the characters. They're ignoring the psychology of how decisions like these are actually made, and they're ignoring practical considerations like law, emotion, and utility. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that everything goes their way. Which we don't have to. Even with hindsight, we can't guarantee that Hank doesn't hold Clark up until the same point in time, and that Clark doesn't dive into the station wagon just like Jonathan did because he's never had a car dropped on him before and wouldn't know that he'd be fine, and then Clark ultimately ends up in a scenario highly likely to reveal his powers, and then the government seizes him up for their Suicide Squad precursor. Okay, assume none of that happens, and it goes exactly as the critic predicts. Clark gets to Hank quickly, returns to the Kents, and everyone is happy. So what? We've handled this already. That's just an example of optimal behavior. We've already established that had they taken Hank to the overpass initially, or if Jonathan had not stopped to help the mother struggling to get her daughter free, or if Hank hadn't hesitated, all of those scenarios also lead to potential happy endings. The possibility, or even the likelihood, of a happy ending is not the test for whether a scene makes sense or is reasonable. It's the decisions that the characters make in the moment based on what they know, their experience their circumstances. And here too, the critic falls short. The proposal is essentially a utilitarian one, which assumes that Jonathan is making a calculation in his head. So the calculation goes like this. Clark is faster, he's stronger, he's more durable than Jonathan, and therefore he's a better candidate to retrieve Hank than Jonathan. The faster you complete the task, the more durable that you are, the lower the risk, and therefore the better candidate Clark is. And in absolute terms, all of those facts are true. Nonetheless, this isn't how Jonathan would approach the problem, assuming for a moment that Jonathan considered sending Clark. His interests are in protecting Clark protecting Clark's secret and in saving Hank. Well, the interest in protecting Clark's secret means that Clark can't use super speed. Assuming he has even discovered his speed at this point, we've discussed that many times on this podcast before, and it looks like Clark doesn't discover his speed until he discovers his flight, but for the sake of argument, even if Clark has some speed, it's not speed on the level which makes him invisible or impossible to identify, especially if he returns to the rally point with all the witnesses, right? More or less, the same goes for super strength, heat vision, and super senses. The expected task Task, is running to a car and opening the door. Those other powers are generally irrelevant to that task, and their use only jeopardizes Clark's secret. So we're left with durability. But that's a far cry from knowing that you're going to survive getting hit in the head with debris flying at 200 miles per hour, that you'll be okay if you're crushed by a flying car or hit by a tornado backed with the energy of 10 tons of TNT. It's simply impossible for Jonathan and Clark to know for certain that Clark can survive a tornado without consequences at this point in time. Of course, course, at the same time, he's putting his secret at risk if he survives getting hit by debris in full view of witnesses. The advantage of some unknown amount of increased durability in the face of a tornado is weighed against the real possibility of death or the exposure of his secret. And aside from debris and getting thrown, there's actually another way tornadoes kill, but more on that later. So the math of sending Clark is rapidly getting less appealing from Jonathan's perspective. The chances of Hank being saved only go up marginally over what the projected task is. Run to a car door and open it. But meanwhile, Clark's life and secret would be unnecessarily jeopardized by this task much more than by going with Martha. The math only makes sense if Jonathan knew exactly how much time they had, and knew that Clark could run meaningfully faster without revealing his powers. Durability, heat vision, and strength don't really enter the picture of the equation because preparing for that contingency means that you're expecting those risks. Which means that you're intentionally jeopardizing Clark's secret and in his life, either creating a scenario where Clark might have to demonstrate his powers to save the dog, or have his limits tested beyond anything that they've seen before, Jonathan has already established that having to choose between showing his powers and saving is not a choice that he wanted Clark to have to make with the bus rescue. He never wanted to put Clark into the position of having to choose to save the life of his pet, or to use, for example, visible heat vision, or lift a car in front of strangers, or explain surviving getting hit by debris. None of that makes sense from Jonathan's perspective, and the Interests that he's been established in the film to have. It's profoundly unappealing to Jonathan to send Clark. Unwittingly, Jonathan is putting Clark into the position of having to decide whether to reveal his powers or save Jonathan. But Jonathan doesn't know that at this point, when we're careful not to succumb to hindsight bias. Now, the biggest hypocrisy of the utilitarian analysis is that the critic is complaining that Jonathan didn't do a complete calculation on the benefits of sending Clark instead, while failing to do a complete calculation themselves. We just walk through all the disadvantages of sending Clark, and now let's talk about the advantages of Clark being with Martha. They're unfairly judging a decision that they have the time and the presence of mind to evaluate differently. But ironically, for all their half-baked calculations about Clark's speed and candidacy, it's clear they didn't think them through because a full and thorough calculation tends to vindicate Jonathan. We just talked about all the disadvantages of sending Clark. Now let's talk about the advantages of Clark staying with Martha. Remember that a complete utilitarian analysis is about making choices which maximize overall happiness. There are all sorts of philosophical problems and critiques with utilitarianism, but that's not the show. The critic assumes that Jonathan should have calculated Clark's higher likelihood of success in retrieving Hank sent Clark, which would have resulted in everyone being alive, Clark's secret being safe, and everyone being happy. But we've already discussed how you can't use hindsight bias to predict the outcome. You can't look at the result of a flip of a coin and then say Jonathan should have made a decision that came before the coin flip based on the outcome of the coin flip. As already analyzed, yes, Clark is arguably the better candidate for the specific task of retrieving Hank. But Clark is also a worse candidate, it for maintaining the overall happiness if he were to die or if his secret was exposed, which the Kents posited could have a global impact. Moreover, at no point does the critic ever consider the utility of Clark staying with Martha. Note that Jonathan doesn't just send Clark to the overpass. He gives Clark a mission. He hands Clark a child and then says, get your mom to the overpass. In other words, his mission is to protect his mom and the others around him. This is a mission that he takes seriously and he does it obediently. He brings them to the overpass, and when Martha is the one that wants to run out to Jonathan, Clark is the one that holds her back. Now, irrespective of the myth of overpass safety, as a practical matter, I'm sure they recognize that it doesn't represent absolute safety. It wasn't as if the overpass erected a force field around them all. This is still a tornado event, and who knows if it's going to turn their way or throw dangerous debris in their direction. Although Clark could only marginally improve on Jonathan's performance in retrieving Hank, Clark was magnitudes more equipped to protect the people at the overpass than if jonathan had been there the two primary ways a tornado can harm someone is getting sucked away and hit by flying debris clark's increased strength could be used to keep people from flying away in a plausibly deniable fashion and depending on the type of debris and how clark shielded others it's unlikely that people would recognize his power if all he did was cover their body with his finally if clark was pushed into a position where he was forced to reveal his powers to save the two dozen or more more people present. Their indebtedness would make the situation completely different than if he reveals his powers saving his pet or even his own father. In saving Jonathan or Hank, Clark's powers merely set him apart as another. But if Clark uses his powers to explicitly save the witnesses using his strength or his heat vision to stop an incoming flying vehicle or something similar, they would owe him their lives and perhaps some loyalty and hopefully some silence. It would be far from the ideal circumstance of not having to demonstrate his powers at all, but it would be better to show his powers to people he could reasonably ask to keep his secret. The math for Jonathan and for Clark means that it makes more sense for Clark to go and protect everyone at the overpass than to run and open a car door. Of course, all of this is if they had time to strategize, plan, deliberate, and calculate, and we know that isn't the case, or a fair standard of judgment. This is merely to point out how the critics talking about the better candidate based on calculation clearly didn't bother to calculate fully now we've already discussed and know how these kinds of decisions are made these kinds of decisions are fast intuitive and heavily influenced by our past experience and our recent stimuli
4: system one is trying to work out an answer as quickly and seamlessly as possible which is extremely beneficial in everyday life If every activity required full mental effort, it would be exhausting. But knowing this allows us to understand that not all of our first impressions are correct. In a similar way, System 1 generates context without you knowing. Without an explicit context, System 1 quickly generates one based on previous experience. This ties into a concept called priming. For example, if I said wash, how would you complete this word fragment? Most would see soap, but had I just shown you the word eat, you'd be more likely to see soup. In this way, both eat and wash prime your thoughts. Though System 2 likes to think that it's in charge and knows what's going on, the truth is that priming effects have even been shown to affect and modify behavior. These arise in System 1, and you have no conscious access to them.
0: We discussed this last episode, but Jonathan is primed on multiple levels to be paternal and protective towards Clark by the conversation in the station wagon. The idea that Clark's ambiguous powers played a part in the analysis is unlikely. As far as Jonathan is concerned, the boy we saw in the bus rescue is more or less the last time Clark used his powers for the next four years. He had grown and transformed into 17-year-old Clark over the course of 1,500 days without using powers, to the point of being sick of it. On the blog, I posted an article about how a more baby-faced Henry Cavill and a younger Kevin Costner would have played to our intuitions better. However, it's not inherently a plot hole, per se. There are mature-looking teens, and if Clark had transformed that much, Jonathan's instinct might have been to think of Clark as not having powers, since this person was careful never to exhibit them. Nonetheless, Clark's behavior in the station wagon also reinforced his relative immaturity, which triggers Another consideration. Jonathan is Clark's guardian, and Clark isn't legally an adult. Commanding your son to head towards a tornado is arguably child endangerment. While the boundaries of Jonathan's thoughts, morality, principles, and beliefs would have never even had him come close to considering or needing to wonder about those legal limits, the law acts as an agreed upon societal boundary line enacted by our representatives and legislature. In other words, the societal norm is that parents don't endanger their children who are minors. But in the case where a parent is so bad that they don't conform to the norm, the law acts as a safety net to hold parents who would endanger their children accountable. It's one thing for an independent adult to choose to risk their own life. It's another to allow an unemancipated minor to risk theirs in your place. Consider the witnesses in that scene. They don't know that Clark can survive a tornado. They don't know that Clark might be safer. They just see a parent allowing their child to risk their life. It doesn't matter if Clark looks capable and volunteers, there's no guarantee that the people by the overpass will unanimously let that go. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't think it crossed Jonathan's mind either way, but it shows how the critics' suggestion crosses even a basic agreed-upon societal line. They could argue that Clark comes back and lies about his age, but that doesn't change the rationale behind the law, which parents aren't expected to cross in the first place. And why? it would never cross Jonathan's mind. Why? Because parents are naturally expected to have paternal and protective emotions towards their children. Again, the utilitarian criticism fails to account for how feelings muddle any sort of math. Even if, for the sake of argument, sending Clark was absolutely the optimal course of action, it doesn't mean that Jonathan would be inclined to do it based on his emotions. And that's far from foolish. It's arguably the heart of humanity and why we struggle with moral dilemmas. Consider the following. Following dilemma, where the optimal and rational path is clear, yet nonetheless abhorrent. Sure,
10: I mean Josh was the guy with the
0: moral puzzles. Uh,
1: I study moral judgment and decision making.
10: Are you going to get into the whole uh-huh. baby? Would you kill your baby? Question. Yes, exactly, oh, exactly. Man. So, for those
5: of you who, who need to follow this, in that earlier
1: radio lab, right. we we described the last episode of the TV show Mash. It's wartime.
9: There's an enemy patrol coming down the road.
1: You're hiding in the basement with some of your fellow villagers.
6: Let's kill those lights.
1: And the enemy soldiers are outside. They have orders to kill anyone that they find.
6: Quiet! Nobody make a
0: sound until they've passed us.
5: So there you are. You're huddled in the basement. All around you are enemy troops. And you're holding your baby in your arms your baby with a cold a bit of a sniffle and you know that your baby could cough at any moment
1: if they hear your baby they're going to find you and the baby and everyone else and they're going to kill everybody and the only way you can stop this from happening is cover the baby's mouth but if you do that the baby's going to smother and die if you don't cover the baby's mouth the soldiers are going to find everybody and everybody's going to be killed including you including your baby then
5: you have the choice would you smother your own baby to save the village? Or would you let your baby cough knowing the consequences?
10: And, 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 and make clear for me why, where we're going with this, Robert. Like, I don't know.
5: <laughs> you asked me a question at the time.
10: And how many people chose to kill their baby? About
5: half. Wow. That's not bad what do you mean it's not bad (laughs) you're in favor of killing the baby well what what would you do me i would never i would i wouldn't even consider i would kill the baby you would the village will go on to have a hundred babies
10: your baby is just one
5: (laughs) my baby is my world my baby is my universe
10: so i don't you're gonna erase all those people based on your one child
5: well, first of all, the audience should know that Chad Abumra does not have a child of his own yet. <laughs> okay, now now we have the benefit of time passing. Yeah. Just out of sheer curiosity, now that you have a child and you've looked into that child's face <laughs> over and over and over again, I'm just curious, would you... Kill... Is
10: this the whole reason we're doing no, this podcast?
5: No, 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 like no. There's a whole other, no I'm going to... No, you know, right. no, people shouldn't worry. But just out of curiosity, what would you do? Would I kill the baby? Would I Your uh, baby. Not a baby. Your baby.
10: <sighs> Would you like to see a little picture of him? On <laughs> no, I don't want to see a photo. I know what a meal looks like crying out loud. So just, no, see, here's... Uh, I, I have thought about this, actually, because people send us emails about this mm-hmm. for some reason. Um, um, I don't really know. I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, now this is not just like an abstract baby, but it's my baby, well, that does change everything, obviously. So, so it's hard. I'm kind of in a place where I, d- I don't really know. I frankly don't know. Mm-hmm. Wait, let me just think about this. <sighs> I don't know. It's kind of an impossible question. Because like, in order to answer it truthfully, which is I I would not kill my baby, I'd have to sacrifice a principle, which is like not as important to me as my baby, but almost. That principle being... Well, that sometimes you have to sacrifice something very dear for the greater good. I just think that that's a really, I mean, not to get all communistic mm-hmm. on you, but that's a really important idea to me. And,
5: and in this case, by the way, the, the calculus of what is about to happen if the baby costs is really not known to you. Well, I mean, if, you, you know, if you're the philosopher
10: king and you give me two options, one is to kill my baby to save the village or to allow my baby to live, in which case everybody dies. If those are the only two options, then I still feel like you kind of have to kill the baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I could do that. I don't think any father could do that. So my sort of pathetic answer at this point is I can't kill my baby. But then I can't sacrifice the village. So I think I would just, um, like, close my eyes and wish I was somewhere else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is that, you know, when you think about this case, on the one hand, you have an intuitive emotional response that says, no, this is terrible, killing a baby or killing my own baby, even worse. At the same time, a different system within your brain is saying, look, this is as horrible as this is. This is a sensible thing to do. It's the only sensible thing to do, because if you do nothing, everyone will die, whereas if you kill the baby, then at least you and the other people can live. And uh, what what the evidence suggests is that these two competing moral perspectives are really Grounded in different parts of the brain, and the competition has not been resolved.
0: Some may judge and say, given a clear optimal path, there's no question, you smothered the baby. However, a fairer judge would recognize the nature of the dilemma. With choices this hard and this difficult, generally the bias is towards what you've already been doing. When we come to make decisions,
4: we don't evaluate the decision in itself. Instead, what we do is we try to look at other similar decisions we've made in the past and we take those decisions as if they were good decisions. And we say to ourselves, oh, I've made this decision before. Clearly, I don't need to go ahead and solve this decision. Let me just use what I did before and repeat it, maybe with some modifications.
0: So how can I predict what you are going to do on day one, 1,501? Just look at what you did from days 1 through 1,500. Jonathan had made a concerted effort to keep Clark safe all that time. So naturally, he did it again here. And likewise, Clark didn't rebel. He was tired of safe because he had obeyed all that time. So in a rushed circumstance, Clark defaulted to what he had practiced his entire life. He listened to his father. Okay. They agree for Jonathan to bear the risk of running to the car and opening a door, and for Clark to bear the risk of protecting people by the overpass. But what about question 5? Why didn't Clark act? Here, the critic says, it's one thing dealing with abstract and uncertain risks. It's another thing when you see a car come crashing down on your dad. At that point, there's a clear and present danger to your father's life versus some nebulous concept of danger to the people at the overpass. Triage demands that Clark act to save his father's life. How could Clark sit there and do nothing until Jonathan emerged from the car? A lot of that argument is reasonable and persuasive, but it still relies on hindsight, which can't be used. To evaluate the legitimacy of the choices fairly. If you had told Clark, all you have to do is leave right now, free your dad, and limp back together, and everything will be fine. Of course, he would have acted. The possibility of success, based on our omniscient audience knowledge, is never the fair, just, or reasonable test. It holds the characters unfairly accountable for information that they don't have. Clark doesn't know that his dad is injured, and that he won't be able to walk, and that there's not enough time. For For all he knows, Jonathan will emerge from the car in a second and come sprinting back. The critics like to imbue Clark with omniscience, based on his x-ray vision and his heightened hearing, but nothing in the scene suggests that he knows what's happening to Jonathan. In fact, Jonathan emerging injured appears to surprise Clark. He tries to calm his mother, saying it's okay when Jonathan leaps into the car, further suggesting that he has no idea that Jonathan needs help. Although Jonathan's safety is now an elevated interest, note that nothing has changed about the risks of Clark venturing out there. His abilities are still capped if he intends to conceal them, and they still have no idea whether a tornado could kill him, and to the extent that he intends to use his powers, he would risk revealing them. We know that Jonathan was trapped and wounded, but Clark didn't. All he knew is that Jonathan had the presence of mind and the agility to dodge a flying car. Jonathan is in the car for only about 20 seconds, and only 10 seconds longer than Hank. The first time you watch the scene, Everything feels stretched out like an eternity, and there's a sensation of asymmetric desperation and dread. The amount of trouble that Jonathan is in and the amount of inaction on Clark's part. But the more you watch that scene, the faster and faster you realize things happened. Clark only just arrived at the overpass and finished handing over the little girl back to her mother a scant 12 seconds before Jonathan dodges the flying car. At that moment, Martha wants to run out and Clark manages to hold her back. He's doing what Jonathan told told him to do. And about 10 seconds later, Hank is free and on his way back to them. So Jonathan's mission was harrowing but so far successful. If he came sprinting after Hank, everything would be alright. Only as the seconds tick by, Jonathan hasn't emerged yet. But at the 12 second mark, they can see Jonathan fall out of the car. Martha screams his name and Clark says something illuminating. Mom, stay here. He has already stepped past her and he's holding her back with his left arm. And what does that tell us? That Clark was going to act. He was getting ready to act. There would be no reason to tell Martha to stay there if he was going to remain where he was to hold her back. Clark was asking for her cooperation as he prepared to go out there. He wasn't idly waiting while Jonathan was imperiled. He was struggling to overcome a lifetime of programming in 20 seconds or less. In the segment that presented the moral dilemma, the horrific choice is merely presented as a hypothetical to a man who had been a father for less than a year. Year. And yet it still took him minutes to arrive and a non answer, fighting the facts of the situation by closing his eyes and wishing he were somewhere else. In the story of Abraham's faith being tested, he had days to overcome his every instinct to rebel. Here, Clark had been told his entire life not to publicly use his powers, and he had only seconds to defeat that core, central tenant of his upbringing and to do the exact reverse. Less than five seconds after telling Martha to stay, Clark looks back at the witnesses gathered at the overpass behind him, and he's desperate doing the math like he's been taught to do, to consider the consequences, to think of everyone, even those beyond his senses. Even if that's the last thing he wants to do now. If you asked Clark, wouldn't you rather just rush out and save your dad without worrying about witnesses? He'd say yes, that's what he wants. Yet Jonathan and Martha raised him too well. Even as he's about to dash out and change the entire paradigm of his existence, no longer a secret to the world, but a known quantity, exposed for all the world to consider, fear, reject, control hate worship embrace sensationalize or drive out he still takes that reflexive look back to consider the witnesses and that gives jonathan just enough time to make eye contact with clark and he shakes his head no holds up his hand to stop clark shakes his head again gives a sad smile and 14 seconds from when he makes that initial eye contact with clark he's gone The answer to why Clark didn't act was because he didn't have all the information that we have as the audience. We have a better idea of his capabilities from tradition and from the oil rig scene. We know what's going on in the station wagon, and upon repeat viewings, we know how much time everyone has. But Clark didn't. Everything was coming to him in roughly 10 second increments, 10 seconds from reaching the overpass until Jonathan reached the station wagon without issue. The flying car hits the station wagon, but in 10 seconds, Hank is out and running back towards them. And in 10 seconds, Jonathan is out of the car. In 5 seconds, Jonathan stops Clark from coming to him. And in the final 10 seconds, Jonathan is gone. At no point during that did Clark have the information to instantly overcome the inertia of his upbringing and a lifetime of training to the contrary. Yet he had desperately tried to, and was about to, just before Jonathan stopped him. Basically, the instant Clark had the information and the ability to act, he tried to, but he was stopped. And that brings us to question number six. Why did Jonathan hold up his hand? The critic assumes that Clark could save Jonathan and doesn't accept Jonathan stopping Clark. And the critics raise a number of arguments in the alternative. Argument one Clark could have easily saved Jonathan without detection. Or argument two Clark could have saved Jonathan in a plausibly deniable way. Or argument three Clark could have saved Jonathan and revealed his powers and no one would have cared. Revealing your secret is no big deal, just like with the bus rescue. Basically, since the rescue was possible and without consequence, Jonathan was foolish to stop Clark from saving him. And after that, they dogpile on all sorts of ancillary accusations that really aren't worth dignifying with an answer, but they tend to be counterfactual dispersions, like alleging that Jonathan was suicidal, wanted to teach Clark a lesson, etc. The plain viewing of the film makes such interpretations ridiculous, so we're not going to address those, but I'm incredibly sympathetic to the first line of thinking for a casual viewer. They're probably coming to the film with the baggage of tradition making it hard to pretend like you don't know that traditionally, Superman has super speed, which allows him to act invisibly in the world without detection. They see Jonathan hold up his hand, and they think that means that he knows that Clark could save him. And finally, most damning of all, that's exactly what Clark says to Lois to conclude this story and the scene. I let my father die because I trusted him. How are you to interpret something like that except as an admission that he could have saved his father? I completely understand why those not heavily invested in the film came away with that belief and subsequent condemnation, because it's very easy to draw that conclusion from those three points. However, hopefully, by this point in the show, you know that the standard of good judgment for fairness and justice isn't just an easily reached conclusion. Just because a judgment is easy doesn't mean that it's accurate or right. Now let's look at those three points. I don't think the first one requires a ton of analysis. It clearly isn't just or fair to use external continuity to definitively declare what a character's powers are in another continuity. I think most people will naturally intuit that it's inappropriate to expect that this Superman can turn back time or steal memories with a kiss. But since super speed is seen across more renditions of Superman, it's harder for people not to take for granted. As hard as it is for casual viewers to set aside one impression of what Superman's powers are, consider how much harder it is for Clark to set aside a lifetime of teaching telling him to never expose his secret. Anyways, despite this difficulty, the filmmakers were extremely deliberate in providing the parameters of Clark's powers up to this point. The oil rig scene carefully establishes Clark's potential, but shows that he was flightless. A multitude of scenes between then and this point of the film would have been easier with flight or super speed, but neither are demonstrated because Clark doesn't have them until meeting Jor-El, which is meant to definitively show the audience that that is when Clark gains flight and accordingly super speed. The flying scene comes immediately before this flashback, making it clear that Clark didn't have flight during the tornado scene, didn't know the full scope of his powers and his limits, and in my opinion, didn't have super speed. But I'm not going to retread all of that. You can listen to previous episodes of the pod laying out that proof. But even if you want to believe that Clark had super speed, which he didn't use in the oil rig rescue or on Ellesmere or in the scout ship, the flying scene shown right before this shows us that Clark's speed is dangerous. It creates violent sonic booms that rip through the air, and it shatters mountains upon impact. Two episodes ago, we talked about the collateral effects of speed on that magnitude, and the question becomes, even if Clark could move that fast, It's neither fast enough to be invisible to the naked eye, and it isn't bounded by something like the Speed Force to protect Jonathan Kent from those catastrophic collateral effects rushing out at that speed would kill Jonathan. But any slower, he's giving up his secret. With Jonathan holding out his hand, the implication is that if he didn't, that meant that Clark could successfully rescue him without issue. And while that's the natural assumption, I don't think it's a necessary one. Out of the context of paranormally powered individuals, we've actually seen this scene quite a bit, haven't we? It's the true-life trope that takes the form of, go on without me, or save yourselves, or don't be a hero, or the person who lets go after being told, hang on, don't let go. In those cases, the person is asking their compatriots not to attempt rescue for the sake of the greater good. It isn't a statement about their friend's ability to rescue them. In fact, it tends to be quite the opposite. The person sacrificing themselves knows that their friends have the impulse and the desire to rescue them. However, they know that in the attempt to rescue, they're compromising the safety of the entire group or the success of the mission. If the person sacrificing themselves felt that there was no cost or risk to being rescued, it wouldn't make any sense to sacrifice themselves. When the person says, go on without me, save yourselves, or don't be a hero, they're saying, I know you intend to and can try to go on with me or save me, but that is only going to cost you your life or cost us the mission. It's why the person dangling from below loosens their grip or cuts their line for the sake of everyone else. So Jonathan holding out his hand is much more consistent with this interpretation than a purely unnecessary sacrifice. Jonathan is saying, I know you're going to rush out here, Clark, but that's not going to save me. It's only going to jeopardize you, your mother, your secret, and possibly the whole world. Okay, so we're left with Clark's statement, which is pretty powerful, and I, and I previewed this last episode that Clark might be an unreliable narrator when explaining what happened, but we've accounted for importing expectations outside the film and for Jonathan holding up his hand, but what about Clark saying, I let my father die because I trusted him? The most obvious interpretation is that Clark is saying he could have saved his father if he didn't trust him. However, I think there are two alternative interpretations. The first one is that he's doing what we've been so careful to guard against this entire episode, which is to have hindsight bias. Clark considers what he knows now, and the abilities that he has now, and he's judging himself back then as he is today. And there's a certain rationale to that. Arguably, nothing stopped him from ever flying except trying. So Clark might be bearing some of the same sort of false guilt that Batman has occasionally indulged in, or that defines Spider-Man, condemning himself for knowledge that he couldn't possibly have had The time. And there's a little support for this when Clark tells Martha that he thinks that they were worried about his secret getting out, and she corrects him that they believed that the world would recognize the beauty of his secret. However, I think that's just Clark defaulting back to his secrecy training. I do believe that there is a persistent weight to Jonathan's death, but I don't think Clark was saddled with a guilt complex, at least not one where he holds himself directly responsible. Instead, I think there's another interpretation, which is similar to what authorized family members may say in an end-of-life scenario. When someone is terminally ill, saying that you let them die doesn't imply that you had the power to save them from that illness. What it means is that you could have taken measures, but you didn't. To me, Clark isn't saying that he knows for certain that he could have saved Jonathan, but he's saying that he didn't even try. He let what was happening happen. And part of the intentional ambiguity of the scene is that he may never know if he could have saved Jonathan or done it without revealing his secret. The strongest support for this interpretation is how Lois reacts. If Clark is saying that he could have saved his father but didn't, that's something difficult to sympathize with and arguably something to be reasonably horrified by. Yet if Clark is saying that he let somebody go in an impossible situation, that's a sympathetic situation for Lois. At least to me, it seems pretty clear that Clark, at age 17, didn't have the power or the experience to easily and invisibly save Jonathan without consequence. It's not a power that they established at that point in the film or really at any time in the film either. And many critics might recognize that and concede that point. But then they argue that Clark still could have saved Jonathan in a manner that was plausibly deniable. In other words, Clark didn't have to use blindingly fast speed. He could have just run out there a shade faster than humanly possible and done something to save Jonathan. And there's definitely merit to that idea. Clark could have doubled Jonathan's running speed without necessarily forcing people to conclude he was alien, and he would have reached Jonathan before he was swept up, but then what? Remember that Clark couldn't free himself to act until Jonathan was just a little over 10 seconds from being gone. Having Clark set off any time earlier is unfairly assuming information and abilities he doesn't have, like knowing how much time is left or being able to overcome his own training sooner and faster. So he might be able to plausibly reach Jonathan in time, but he wouldn't be able to carry Jonathan back in time, not without resorting to speeds that would kill him. Now if Clark was at the peak of his powers, versed in their limitations, and experienced with the dangers of tornadoes and how to survive them, well beyond what a 17-year-old kid would know in 1997, he might drive his arms into the road and pin Jonathan to the ground, cover him with his own body to keep Jonathan from being swept away, and reduce the risk of getting hit by flying debris. Unfortunately, even that would not be enough.
4: Sanjay is here with me now, and Sanjay, we got the, the official medical examiner reports, the cause of death, for every one of the 24 victims what struck you
8: there weren't as many head or brain injuries as i think uh, people expected from this sort of thing they also talked a lot about something known as mechanical asphyxiation it's a, it's a tough thing to, to talk about john but basically this is not a situation of drowning which was the original thought as much as it is a situation where the lungs are so compressed that uh, someone simply cannot breathe anymore
0: of course this level of speculation is absurd because clark is 17. the last time he used his powers was when he was 13. he has absolutely no experience in dealing with tornadoes, he's in a heightened emergency situation, and he would have no idea what to do even if he reached his father in time. Many critics fantasize about Clark getting caught up in the tornado and flying off with Jonathan, later explaining their survival as just one of those crazy things. And while that's a possibility and miracles can happen, that's heavily leveraging our future knowledge that Clark can fly against a Clark who can't even conceive of such a thing. Even after Clark is told he can fly, it took him more than one try to get it in the meantime, Jonathan could get ripped away from him, struck by flying debris, or asphyxiated by the wind speed. So this is more of an unfair, idealized hype dream than a practical possibility to reasonably judge Clark against. Well finally, there's the argument that Clark could have simply revealed his powers and not cared about the witnesses and rescued Jonathan. And afterwards, it would have been no big deal, just like the bus rescue ended up being no big deal. And for the sake of argument, let's say Clark could have saved Jonathan if he revealed his powers. Something that I'm not sure that the critics understand is that there absolutely is merit to this argument. And that's exactly what Clark is struggling with. And that's why he's telling the story. What if people learned that he was out there? Lois. What do you think? However, I think the critics are far too quick to assume that there will be no consequences and that the bus rescue proves that. Now again, Jonathan and Clark didn't sit down and do a careful, deliberate calculation of risk. Rather, this is simply to show that the critics didn't if they don't distinguish this scene from the bus rescue. So how is this scene different from the bus rescue? Well, we talked about this way back in episode 13, so I'm not going to retread it too much. But in short, with the bus incident, there are a handful of witnesses who are all children. They were all from Smallville. They all owed Clark their lives. And apparently in Smallville, people openly confront you with gossip, and they ascribe the situation to the divine. With the tornado, we're talking about absolute strangers and adults with no allegiances towards Clark, his family, Smallville, or God. Note afterwards... They'd be stranded. Their cars were damaged and gone. They would be stuck with the witnesses for hours. Clark doesn't have flight yet, and he can't meaningfully run away because he'd have to leave Martha, Hank, and Jonathan. But the witnesses could still point the finger at them, and the authorities would follow up with their inquiries. A phenomenon that occurs in front of two dozen unconnected strangers ceases to be an urban legend and becomes an incident to be investigated. Okay, let's wrap this up quickly with our last question, number seven. Why did Clark abide by that? So the critic is pointing out even if jonathan didn't want clark to rush out that doesn't mean that clark had to respect that decision he could still dash out and try to do something and i think we've already answered this between last episode and this episode basically this was the logical psychological consequence of clark's upbringing and their conversation in the station wagon clark was primed to obey jonathan in this moment and it was an inaction filled with uncertainty i can argue why it might be futile or not utilitarian for the people there or for the sake of the planet but none of that is really relevant because it wasn't how Clark made that choice. He was relying on Jonathan's determination and conviction. And how he lives with that, and how it affects him, we covered in our next episode when we talk about Clark from ages 17 to 33, and the creative criticisms and intentions behind this scene. Obviously, we didn't tackle every conceivable criticism of this scene, but we exhaustively covered about as much as I'm willing to do, and hopefully more important than any specific arguments you might have picked up, you learned an approach to analyzing and breaking down criticism into to elements, and then testing those elements. Well, next time we'll figure out what the point of this whole scene was. But let's just quickly sum up what we've covered. We embraced knowing what you don't know and uncertainty by covering the Dunning-Kruger effect and the imposter effect. We saw the importance of humility and the competence of Clark's parents and how we're all vulnerable to cognitive bias. We showed how the justice system is meant to arrive at fair judgments rather than biased ones and provided a framework for evaluating decisions by using a reasonable person. We learned how fair judgment of a reasonable person includes their circumstances, such as under an emergency doctrine. And then we learned how fair judgment has to account for the reasonable person's knowledge, such as following the prevailing wisdom of 1997, even if wrong when compared to today's knowledge. We learned how people are bad at making decisions in emergencies, making it hard for experts to know how to streamline advice for panicking people. We covered how fair judgment avoids succumbing to hindsight bias. We clarified that a conceivable outcome is not a certain one and the importance of recognizing the rationality of others irrespective of your own personal feelings. For example, whether you consider a pet family or not. And then we backed up the love of dogs with neuroscience, and learned about the tragic tale of Tubby on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. We showed how the standards of care reflected in Man of Steel are exhibited in real life, and we learned how real emergency decision making is not careful, deliberate, or rational. And we learned how loss aversion makes us prone to making risk. Yet how both these things are necessary traits for heroic altruism, which doesn't make sense otherwise. We showed how a true utilitarian calculus considers imperfect information and not just the advantages of doing something, but the disadvantages of doing that thing, as well as the cost and benefits of alternatives. We briefly revisited priming and reminded ourselves that Clark is a 17-year-old minor. We again remember that people aren't strictly rational actors and that emotional stakes are relevant to reasonable decision-making and illustrated the point with a moral Dilemma and we learned that when faced with hard choices, we tend to rely on our history or default choice. We broke down the scene and learned that Clark was going to act, but explained why he didn't. We revisited and dismantled the assumptions that Clark knew that he was invulnerable, that he could have invisibly saved Jonathan without issue, and that he could have done anything had he reached Jonathan, and that Jonathan's fears of exposure were unfounded. We sympathized with the common misconceptions of Clark's powers, Jonathan's raised hand, and Clark's statement, and then proposed a more plausible reconciliation. Finally, we were reminded that while fast and easy judgments are understandable, that doesn't make them fair, just, good, or right. The fact that something requires interpretation and explanation doesn't mean it's a failure. It means that it has depth to explore and is worth getting right. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time.
2: the answer, son.
8: I'm biased because I knew it all along. Hindsight, bias, I knew it all along. I'm biased because I put you in a category which you may or may not belong representativeness bias don't stereotype this song i'm biased because of a small detail that throws off the big picture of a thing anchoring bias see the forest for the trees i'm biased toward the first example that comes to mind availability bias the first thing that comes to mind oh bias. Don't Bias in your mind Bias, don't try this, it'll influence your thinking And memories, don't mess with these But you're guilty of distorted thinking Caught now to bias, your mind becomes blinded Decisions and problems, you've been forced to solve the wrong thing I'm biased because I'll only listen to what I agree with Confirmation bias, you never mind if you are this I'm biased because I take credit for success, but no blame for failure Self-serving bias, my success and your failure I'm biased when I remember things the way I would have expected them Expectancy, bias, false memories are shaped by these I'm biased because I think my opinion now was my opinion then Self-consistency, bias, but you felt different way back when Oh, bias, don't let bias in your mind Bias, don't try this dirty thinking cognitive bias and becomes blinded decisions and problems you've been forced to solve them all you're the answer son